0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 295, The Battle of Tunggu. Last time, with the Allied forces having lost eastern and southern Burma, a change in leadership was clearly needed. Hence, General Sir Harold Alexander, the new CNC of Allied land forces in Burma, called on General William Bill Slim to take command of the actual fighting. Slim flew in from Iraq, stopped in Delhi, and then finished up the last part of his journey at Akyab, modern-day Sitway, a small port on the Arakan coast of western Burma. There he talked with Lieutenant General Morris, the Chief of General Staff in India, and Air Vice Marshal Stevenson, Air Officer Commanding in Burma. Between this conversation and what Slim already knew, he quickly figured out that air power would play a vital role in this war, as there were few roads. However, and this would be bared out, he guessed that air power alone would not determine the victor. Basically, he came to the same conclusion as General Vinegar Joe Stilwell, just from the opposite direction. Even worse, after looking at a map, Slim saw that Burma's major airports were not only lined up north to south, but were on the eastern side of Burma, all easily within range, of Japanese aircraft, and their locations meant those airfields, now or soon to be in Japanese hands, could hit what airstrips remained in Allied hands with little warning. As for what was left, the British and American pilots still had the use of two smaller airstrips, one at Magway, about 350 miles or 506 kilometers north by northwest of Rangoon and Akihab, practically due west of Magwe, where Slim had landed on the west coast. As neither was a large place, the 45 or so planes the Allies still retained were divided up between these two locations. Yet neither would have radar as their last set had been sent to India for safety. And again, the Japanese had just over 400 fighters and bombers. As these enemy planes were able to operate practically unchallenged, as the Allied air warning teams had no radios, so were dependent upon sporadic landlines. To help General Slim's rather slim air arm, fighters would be coming in from Calcutta to harass enemy ground troops, take on Japanese fighters when lucky enough to encounter them, and hopefully chase away any enemy ships in the Bay of Bengal. But continuing with this sad, comedic enterprise that Slim had just been thrown into, he would find that army headquarters and air headquarters would always be at least 100 miles apart from each other. This would not change throughout the entire war. From Akyab, Slim was flown to Magwe, the now main airbase, relatively speaking, then to Mandalay, roughly in the center of the country. From there, he would be driven to nearby Mameyo on March 19th, Burma's summer capital and the location of Army headquarters. Right away, Slim could see that it was an organizational mess, but he did not blame General Hutton, whom he was replacing, as he had only been there since December. More conversations followed, and Slim surmised that their ground game wasn't much better than their air arm. First, the Indian troops at hand were trained for desert warfare in the Middle East, certainly not for jungle fighting, and they only moved by trucks, which wouldn't work in Burma. Next, these Indians, nor the Burmese troops of the 1st Burma Division, had any combat experience, and just as important, at least to Slim, a sense of tradition, pride in their unit, or a history of success. It didn't help that the artillery pieces they had, which were not enough, were Austrian 77mm anti-tank guns taken from the Italians back in 1918. And rounding off this tale of woe, the country's rail lines, like their airfields, ran north to south, which meant they could be hit by the Japanese coming in from the east at any point they chose how to defend against something like that. At Mamayo, Slim finally met General Alexander, although their conversation was short as the commanding officer was on his way to meet the governor. The civilian situation was just as bad as the military, with the Burmese people either trying to get away from the fighting or joining the new nationalist movement that was currently harassing Allied troops. The one bright spot, well, Gray, rather than blinding white, were the Chinese troops that Chiang Kai-shek had offered. Which brings us to General Joseph Stilwell. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Chinese offer had first been made in late December. Of 41. In mid January of the new year, General George Marshall, Army Chief of Staff, sat down with Stilwell and asked, in his opinion, if something tangible could be done with the Chinese to turn around the war. Stilwell replied, Yes, if I were given command. Marshall agreed, but asked, How would this even be possible? An American commanding Chinese troops. The more blunt man in the room, Stillwell and that saying something, replied, Ask Chiang Kai-shek, if you will. Marshall said, Write out the question. This inquiry went to T.V. Sung, the Chinese foreign minister, an intelligent and ambitious man who did not respect his brother-in-law, the nationalist leader, and he wanted to replace him. Still, the representative told the Americans what they wanted to hear. Stillwell would be most welcome in China. On January 23rd, Marshall asked Stilwell if he would go to China, which Vinegar Joe replied, I'll go where I'm sent. On that same day, Rabaul was invaded. Now, this appointment did not make Marshall happy, as he was hoping to deploy his best corps commander to Africa for America's entry into the war. But both generals were swept up by forces larger than themselves. Stilwell spent the next few days getting his ducks in a row by preparing a staff, going over the most update information on the war in China, putting in requests for planes, big guns, and dive bombers, and meeting with Lachlan Curry, the Lend-Lease Administrator, to China. The good news was that Stilwell was now a lieutenant general. Not that this excited him. Why? Because of what was expected of this new lieutenant general. Something between Hercules and Jesus. First, his positions. He was to be the new commanding general of all U.S. Army forces in the China-Burma-India Theater, or CBI. Chief of Staff to the Supreme Commander China Theater, who was Chiang Kai-shek, supervisor of Lend-Lease and U.S. Representative on any Allied War Council. Now, in almost any other theater, this would have been... All to the good. The chance to conduct a war and control all the politics and supplies around it. But well feared he would have everything he needed except troops, American or Chinese. As for the latter, would the local troops obey him? He was guessing not. Now, for his responsibilities. He was to maintain the Burma Road, command any Chinese forces given to him, train any Chinese forces he could and, though not lastly, increase the effectiveness of U.S. assistance to the Chinese government for the prosecution of the war. This last part had to be spelled out as to not be manipulated by Chiang Kai-shek. But more responsibilities were being added as they came into existence, like how to get supplies to China as everyone predicted that the Burma Road would be closed as Rangoon seemed likely to fall. No worries, TV soon wrote a letter to FDR, who had expressed an interest in creating an air route to keep the supplies flowing. The letter said, in part, I know of a route that's only 700 miles long that goes from northeast India to Kunming in China, and the route had a few comparatively level stretches. Of course, he left out that in between those two points was the Himalayas specifically the eastern end of this mountain range that would become known as the Hump, to the Allied pilots who had to brave it. Currently, there were no trained units to fly this route, no airfields for the larger planes that would be needed, no reliable charts, no radio navigation aids, and little information about the weather. But here's a snippet of the official history of the Army Air Force. The Brahmaputra Valley floor lies 90 feet, 27 meters, above sea level at Chabua. From this level, the mountain wall surrounding the valley rises quickly to 10,000 feet, 3,000 meters, and higher. Flying eastward out of the valley, the pilot first topped the Patkai Ridge, then passed over the upper Chinwin River Valley, bounded on the east by a 14,000-foot 4,300-meter ridge, the Kuman Mountains. Then he crossed a series of 14,000 to 16,000 feet, 4,300 meters to 4900 meters ridges, separated by the valleys of the West Irrawaddy, East Irrawaddy, Salween, and Mekong Rivers. The main hump, which gave its name to the whole awesome mountain mass and to the air route which crossed it, was the Song Range, often 15,000 feet, 4,600 meters high, between the Salween and Mekong rivers. East of the Mekong, the terrain became decidedly less rugged and the elevations more moderate as one approached the Kunming Airfield, itself 6,200 feet, 1,900 meters above sea level. Unfavorable weather conditions along the route were a major contributing factor to its difficulty. The Assam-Kuming route was situated in the middle of the three Eurasian air masses that were stirred and conflated by the presence of the Himalayas themselves. Moist, warm air from the Indian Ocean to the south produced high pressure that swept north, while cold, dry air from Siberia moved south. These lows and highs were extreme, producing violent winds, and when those winds hit the immovable mass that was the world's tallest mountain range, they shot upwards at startling speeds until they cooled and then rushed downward in terrifying drafts that hurled airplanes earthward at stupefying rates of descent. Turbulence inside the cloud mass was severe. Pilots reported being flipped upside down by gusts, while many others were unable to report anything because they went missing. This was the route that was to make up for the loss of the Burma Road. As for the last legs of this route from the American East Coast, the supplies would be sent to Calcutta, then go by rail to Assam in northern India then the goods would be loaded up on Douglas DC3s and that arduous flight would begin all this would be within Stillwell's portfolio as well yet he was eager in this regard considering it a necessity as the war in Burma would assuredly get worse before it got better stillwell wrote we must get the airline going at once and also build up the back country road and it would be this backcountry road that would be labeled in time Stillwell's Folly. Yet the truth was that the Lado Road, not called the Stillwell Road until 1945, was to be China's backup plan. Honestly, the Chinese had lost faith in the Westerners' ability to hold back the Japanese, at least anytime soon. So besides flying over the hump, they wanted a tangible road, to deliver supplies, yet to the north of the Brummer Road, supposedly out of the reach of the Japanese. But setting the record straight, this engineering monstrosity, of which there were many during the war, was a Chinese idea, formulated three weeks after Pearl Harbor, two weeks before Stilwell was considered for the CBI Theater. The idea was to build a road from Lado in Assam, India, to connect with the Burma Road only after it entered China. Of course, in order to do that, the road would have to be constructed through, around, and over mountains, forests, and ever changing rivers. Chiang Kai shek said it could be constructed in five months, but the Amiska officer sent to survey the area came back a month later and said, our estimate is two and a half years. Still, the U.S. War Plans Division recommended it as an urgent military necessity. With this backing, the road was approved even before Stilwell left the United States. When the general did leave for China, he would take along a staff of 35 officers and five enlisted men. To follow would be 400 technicians and instructors to help train the Chinese in the use of American equipment and tactics. On February 9th, Stilwell met with FDR, who told the general to tell CKS Chiang Kai-shek, We are in this thing for keeps, and we intend to keep at it until China gets back all of her lost territory. And this would become official U.S. policy. FDR was not making the same promise to the French or to the British or to anyone else. But on that same day, the Japanese crossed the Salween River. Now, only the Seton River was between them and Rangoon. General Stilwell would fly out of Florida on February the 13th, a Friday. Just days earlier, he had heard plans of a grand gesture against Japan. Singapore was about to fall, the Malay Peninsula was lost, and Burma seemed about to follow suit. Was it possible, as incredible as it seemed, that the Germans in North Africa would meet up with the Japanese in India via Burma? Were the Axis soldiers superior? But ever confident, FDR was pushing for a strike against Tokyo itself. Perhaps an air raid that could be launched from outer Mongolia, if they could do that without the Russians getting involved, of course. No, General Henry Hap Arnold, Chief of the Army Air Force, said he had another plan in the works. Stillwell, in a DC-3 transport, spent the next 12 days crossing over half the world, from Florida to the Caribbean, to South America, across Africa, then north to Cairo, then turning east across Palestine, Iraq, Persia, to New Delhi, landing there on the 25th of February. Just two days before this, the Battle of Satong River was won by the Japanese. Also on February 23rd, Abda Command was dissolved. Wavell was sent back to India. Within the next five days, the Battle of the Java Sea would be over, removing the Abda naval forces as well which meant Java was open to attack, as was the Australian coastline. In New Delhi, Stilwell participated in a meeting at British GHQ, which turned out to be a waste of time. Stilwell wrote in his diary, nobody but the quartermaster knew anything at all. Of what the British did not know, besides not even having a general plan, was any intelligence on enemy movements. So the men around him didn't know what to do next, nor did they know what the enemy was going to do next. Then the general went to Calcutta, the jump-off point to Burma. There he met Wavell, who had just flown in from Java on February 28th. With Wavell was Major General Louis Brereton, who would command the American 10th Air Force that would soon be flying the Hump under Stilwell's command but Stilwell took an immediate dislike to the man because he walked around with a riding crop. Stilwell, who hated pomp and circumstances, said to Brigadier General Frank Dorn, his chief of staff, Why the hell does an Air Corps officer need a riding crop? To beat off the birds, maybe? Their relationship did not improve when Vinegar Joe found out, months later, that Brereton's personal plane had a Persian rug inside cut down to size. While Stilwell and Wavell talked, Rangoon was abandoned, but not before the Allies destroyed 972 unassembled trucks and burned 5,000 tires. Behind the sounds of gun, artillery, and the droning of planes, politics is always present. Some of the British officers leaving Rangoon were not that much interested in fighting Japan, if it meant giving up the empire, for they had caught wind of these subtle but world-changing conversations between FDR and Churchill. As much as FDR feared China being overrun, he also feared, however unrealistic as it was, India shrugging off the British and coming to an understanding with the Japanese. Between this and his idea of nations having the right of self-determination, which had been expressed in August of 41 in the Atlantic Charter, the President was receptive when some in India used the Japanese threat to strive for concessions from the British. FDR encouraged Churchill in this, the latter barely holding on to his temper. But for the time, no promises were made to the subcontinent. Then Chiang Kai shek, normally of a brilliant political mind, stepped into the argument. He, nor the British, liked the outcome. Chang flew to India in February, just before Stilwell arrived, to stir the Indians to fight. Yet Mahatma Gandhi, about to be arrested again by the British, replied, They will never voluntarily treat us Indians as equals. Why, they do not even admit your country to their talks. Gandhi was speaking of the Munitions Control Board in Washington, D.C. that allocated arms and supplies, and Gandhi could not have been more correct, and Chiang knew it. Suddenly, Churchill was getting advice from Chiang and FDR about what to do with India, of which all of it was most unwelcomed. On March 3rd, Stilwell and his staff left Calcutta and flew into Lashio, in the northern Shan State, of Burma, about 200 kilometers or 120 miles northeast of Mandalay in the center of the country. Stillwell got a few minutes with Chang, who was directing his troops, but it was understood they would speak more later. On the border, just inside Burma, the Chinese 5th and 6th Armies were preparing to help defend against the Japanese, but in all honesty, the 6th Army was second rate and its divisions were under strength. On the move, it was heading a bit further south to take up a position currently held by the first Burma Division so that it could be moved to a more advantageous position. As for the Chinese Fifth Army, that was a horse of a different color, it having a full strength motorized division, plus artillery, and had more training than the other divisions. Chiang was loath to give it up, but he had made a promise, and now he was being forced to keep it. Yet, he compromised with himself as he, and this was only on March 1st, released one of its three divisions. Stillwell was only on the ground for a few hours. Next, he flew to Kung He would only stay one night there, but he had an important topic to cover, one that would affect his ability to fight the Japanese. He had to have a reckoning with American hero, Claire Chenault, creator and soul of the American Volunteer Group. Fortunately, Stilwell and the Flyer got along, the latter promising that he had no trouble with incorporating his AVG into the American Air Force, which was true enough, it would be the pilots that rebelled. The next day, two hours in the air, finally had him landing in Chongqing, the nationalist capital. Unfortunately, the locals and the refugees who had come here had endured three years of Japanese bombings without even a pretense of fighter cover or anti-air batteries. The good news, relatively speaking, was that as Chongqing sat on a rock promontory that stuck out where the Yangtze and Chilin rivers met, the people had expanded the numerous rock caves in the area. Whenever lookouts along Free China's border, called in another raid was coming. Stilwell met with Chiang on March 6th and was pleased to hear that the Chinese leader wanted him to command in Burma and seemed eager to fight. Stilwell thought, well, maybe I haven't wasted my time after all. But then reality set in as Stilwell wrote in his diary for the next two days, the word WAITING. While he waited, Stilwell drew up his plans to take on the Japanese. Then Rangoon fell, so his plans were altered. Still, he was itching to get on with it. In theory, some three million Chinese men were serving in the military. This meant about 300 divisions. On paper, there were three regiments to a division, three divisions to an army, and three armies to a group army, and three group armies to a war zone. The problem was that was as organized as it got. Each war zone did its own thing, based on the commander's loyalty or not to Chiang Kai shek. The point was, as Stilwell saw it, that no mass of forces were brought together to really take on the Japanese, as the Chinese attitude was, we've been fighting them long enough, let someone else have a go for a while. After three days of waiting, Stilwell who was about to jump out of his own skin, had a dinner held in his honor. Chang discussed his plans, basically the opposite of what Stilwell wanted to do. The Generalissimo did not want to let his forces engage the Japanese because they might lose, so his cure was to send them in piecemeal, which, of course, would guarantee their destruction. The Americans' response was, let's go before they build up. But no, Chang wanted to maintain a defense in depth, as in having the threat of his forces in the area, but not fully committing them. That's when Vinegar Joe emerged, tired of sitting around and introduced some reality into the conversation. He leveled his eyes at Chang and said, Our interests, the Americans and Chinese, was to regain Rangoon, so supplies could once again flow in. All the British need and or want at this point is a wall in front of India. But Chang was unfazed. The Chinese leader saw the impatience of the American, so told him to go back to Burma to figure out the British intentions, to get a lay of the situation, and how best to employ his defense in depth. Stilwell left for Mameyo on March 11th. By then, Rangoon had been lost. He had been told that the Chinese 5th and 6th Armies were under his command, but when he arrived, only the motorized 200th Division of the 5th Army was at Tunggu, along the new defensive line, which was about 150 miles or 241 kilometers north of Rangoon, from Prome to Tunggun. The two other Chinese divisions were still waiting for supplies to be gathered. Dropping off his few bags, Still went to Flagstaff House to visit the Governor General, Sir Reginald Dorman-Smith. His Excellency was astonished to hear that an American was in charge of Chinese forces in Burma. But this was straightened out when Stillwell left and General Tu Lingming of the Chinese Fifth Army entered. He told the Governor, the American general only thinks that he is commanding. You see, we Chinese think that the only way to keep the Americans in the war is to give a few of them commands, on paper. All this, Stilwell would find out soon enough. Then Stilwell and General Sir Alexander met. As Vinegar Joe put it in his diary, he looked me over as if I'd just crawled from under a rock. Stilwell replied with his own dirty look their relationship would improve from here. How could it not? The American sent a note to General Marshall that he was willing, if not happy, to serve under Alexander, which of course changed nothing on the battlefield. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As things stood, by mid-March, the 200th Division of the Chinese Fifth Army was in Tangoon on the Seton Valley, almost due east of Prome, where the 17th Indian Division stood in defense. As Prome was 150 miles or 241 kilometers northwest of Rangoon, this left Central and North Burma still in Allied hands. But having the Chinese Division and the 1st Burma Division at Tangoon was overkill, so on March 17th, General Alexander ordered the 1st Burma, to move west to take up a position just north of pro there it could react to whichever direction the japanese attacked from but as the first burma moved out it had to contend with advanced japanese units as well as troops from the burmese national army locals who had been armed and trained by the invaders what was needed by the Allies, besides basic reconnaissance, was a way to slow down the Japanese as other Chinese divisions were on their way south. Alexander decided to kill two birds with one stone by sending out an air raid against the Japanese planes at the Mingalandan airfield near Rangoon. Nine Bristol-Blemen light bombers, escorted by ten hurricanes, took off from Magwe on March 21st. They managed to destroy several enemy planes while on the ground, but as the enemy had just over 400 planes in the area, the enemy's intense reaction should have been factored in. That very same day, and the next day, major air attacks were sent against Magway, Turning the tables nicely, many Tomahawks, Hurricanes, and Blemens were bombed while on the ground. What planes remained were sent to Akyab, on the west coast. Now the ground troops' air support was based another 140 miles, or 225 kilometers, away. But it was about to get worse. The Japanese 5th Air Division then went after Akyap, launching severe bombing raids, well protected by fighters on March 23rd, 24th, and the 27th. Whittled down even more, the remaining Allied fighters abandoned the area, The RAF crews went to India, the AVG pilots headed north to China, and it was during the loss of these two airfields that the Battle of Tongu took place. The Chinese 200th Division had arrived at Tongu on the same day Rangoon fell. The city on the Sitan River controlled the road that went north to Mandalay, the current location of British General Headquarters. Other roads from Tungu also led to the Shan states of eastern and northeastern Burma, including Lashio, an important way station on the Burma Road. As Tungu was to be the main defensive position of the Chinese army in this area, Major General Dai Anlan got his men to work building defensive positions around the city. And to give himself time to react to any coming attack, he had an outpost set up about 8 miles south of this city at Oak Twin. But to gain even more of a notice, he had a motorized cavalry regiment head a bit further south at Piu. The idea was for the most southern unit to engage the Japanese when they came to buy more time, but also to retreat in good order, thereby joining up with the other force. South of town, which would strengthen their retreat again, buying more time, as timber was plentiful in the area. The defensive walls around the city were strong, and even better, the area around Tongu was generally flat, except to the east, where sat the Seton River. On March 18th, the lead enemy units reached the area south of Tongu. A few days later, the first line of defense was engaged. As planned, the defenders fought back, but retreated as they did so. Things went well in this regard, and it took three days before the Japanese troops could push the motorized regiment to Twin. Now reinforced with those troops, it took another two days before the Chinese troops at Twin could be flushed out. Still, their retreat to Tonggu was in good order. Time was being bought. The question was... Would it be enough? But if the Chinese, like the British or Allied troops before them, expected the Japanese soldiers to fight by their expectations, they were about to be, sadly, mistaken. As the Oak Twin position was engaged, the Japanese 143rd Regiment, with local Burmese help, swung around the fighting to the left, or west, to push north and come at the Tongu Airfield and Railway Station. The troops defending these positions, only an engineer battalion, retreated soon after the fighting began. This penetration cut the 200th Division's communications with its forces fighting to the south. By March 24th, Major General Dai Allan ordered all outlying troops to fall back to the city's walls. Of his three regiments, one was placed to the north of Tangu, in case the enemy tried to swing around, another was placed to the south, fighting hard but holding out, and the last went to the west side. The area to the east had limited fighting ground as the Siton River dominated there. Hopeful but pragmatic, Dai Alan moved his divisional headquarters east, crossing the Siton to the far shore. There, If left unnoticed, it should be safe from enemy bombing and artillery. Then a section of another regiment arrived. The majority of the Chinese forces were still coming south. This new force was put around headquarters on the east side of the river to help protect incoming supplies. Then on March 25th at 8 a.m., the Japanese 55th Division launched a full-scale attack against three sides— of the city. The idea was to push hard on the Japanese left, Chinese right, and force the defenders towards the Seton River, where, as they could not all cross fast enough, would be annihilated, or forced to jump in the river and likely drown. Yet the training of the 200th Division proved itself, and the defenders held on throughout the day. Only the northwest section of Tangu was penetrated. Overall the day had gone well. But that changed at 10 p.m. that night when a full division was brought up to exploit the small incursion to the northwest, not hesitating the Chinese counterattacked, which saw heavy house-to-house fighting as the enemy was within the city's walls. This benefited the Chinese as Japanese planes were too afraid of hitting their own men. But then the defense began to fall apart as the Japanese adapted their tactics. First, using headstones and a graveyard, they were able to inch deeper into the city and, at the very least, avoided being pushed back. Next, some of their artillery was aimed at the bridge to the east, which was damaged enough so that trucks could no longer cross it. The hope of the invaders was that this would make the Chinese panic and think that their escape route was about to be cut off, thus they had to leave before it was too late. Still, the Chinese troops fought on. When the sun rose on March 26th, the Japanese held on to the northwest corner of Tungu. That morning, the southwest corner was also taken, but that was as far as the attackers got. Both sides sent in large counterattacks. All were beaten off, only resulting in massive casualties. But by the end of the day, the Japanese were able to connect their two corners. Hence, they controlled the western part of the city. Now the two sides were fighting across the rail line, about 100 meters apart from each other. Again, the invaders' fighters were unable to get involved. That is, until it was decided for the leading Japanese units to pull back some 200 meters. Then their air arm came in, bombing the defenders who hunkered down as best they could. Not having any anti-air batteries, they took a pounding, but the survivors rose up again when the enemy infantry approached when the bombing stopped. This actually happened a few times that day, which only left more casualties on both sides. During the day, news came that the Chinese 22nd Division was to the north and coming fast. That's when Lieutenant General Yuzo Matsuyama, the commander of the Japanese 55th Division, sent his 2nd Battalion to block them. This worked, but now he had fewer troops to attack the city. The next day, March 27th, enemy air raids continued throughout the day, but it was decided to wait for the 3rd Field Artillery Regiment to arrive before the infantry was sent back in. Arriving on March 28th, the artillery went about, weakening several defending strong points. All that was needed now was a bombing attack to follow up. Yet the bombers did not come until that afternoon, as heavy fog had settled on the airfields they used. Yet March 28th was a propitious day for the Japanese. A well-equipped reconnaissance regiment of the 56th Division, recently arrived at Rangoon, raced north and arrived around midday. It was decided that they would wade across the Satan a few miles to the south and attack the headquarters from the east. As the water there was chest high, the vehicles were left behind. The reconnaissance regiment was on the move. Major General Dai was told of this and saw the possible encirclement of his army, so launched a strong counterattack on the Japanese left flank, hoping to draw off the attack that was about to come at his far eastern section. This didn't work, as the forces protecting his headquarters were soon engaged. However, the Chinese forces in the city and shielding headquarters held out that day. But March 29th would belong to the Japanese. General Matsuyama had all his forces, with all their guns, engage the enemy. His far-left flank was able to take the northern section of the city, which cut off any escape in that direction. Moreover, the reconnaissance regiment had pushed aside most of the defenders around headquarters and was now threatening the command post itself, not to mention the Satong Bridge. That afternoon of March 29th, the Chinese division was ordered to withdraw. They were to go to the eastern side of the Satong by the bridge if possible, or to swim across, but once there, they would gather and head north, hopefully into the arms of their comrades coming south. As the fighting was ongoing in the city, the Japanese suspected this move, but could not be sure. Then General Dye threw sand in the attacker's face by having each battalion leave behind a rear guard to fool the enemy. The rest began retreating to the bridge, which was still barely in friendly hands. By 4 a.m. of March 30th, the 200th Division, with their wounded, was across the Satan. What was left of their rear guard joined them just before dawn. The Japanese 55th Division came in hard that morning of March 30th, taking all the strong points, only to find them empty. The 55th and the Reconnaissance Regiment met up near the bridge on the eastern side of the city. The Chinese 200th Division met up with the 22nd Division and set up a new defensive line at Yedashi, about ten miles to the north. Chiang Kai-shek had been loath to give up these men, deeming them the best he had. He had been proven correct. Not that it saved Tonggu, or the route to the north. General Stilwell saw the danger of losing Tonggu, First Lashio was now open, as the Chinese 22nd Division was brand new, which meant barely trained. Also, if the Japanese could drive further north, not only would the Burma Road or even the Lado Road further north be open to attack, but the British and Commonwealth troops could then be attacked from the north, putting them into an impossible situation. So, Stilwell sent out the appropriate orders for other Chinese forces to move south to help contain the enemy. But he was about to find out. Chiang Kai shek might have used the words commander of all Chinese forces in Burma, but one, the Generalissimo had added a few layers of command in Burma, layers that would decide if those forces moved, and two, As the Chinese leader did not give Stilwell his official seal as Commander-in-Chief, he was just a tolerated American that everyone bowed to, but no one took seriously. Stilwell was at war with more than just the Japanese. He just didn't know it yet. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, This is a bit embarrassing. I missed my own anniversary. Last Friday, July 10th, was my 10th anniversary of doing this podcast. Oh my God, how so much has changed. But anyway, for those of you listening, thank you for sticking with me, for for listening and tolerating all of my mispronunciations, which hopefully you find charming. But anyway, so it's been 10 years. Hopefully I've gotten better over the years. I'm going to the beach next week, but I'm going to try to squeeze out one more. I'll see what I can do. And members, you have another episode coming in a day or two. So anyway, thanks to everyone who's who still listens. I very much appreciate it. You have changed my life. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone.